everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. Hello everyone, my name is Deanna Lynn Cook and this is episode 48 of the History Hotline. If you are new here, welcome and if you're returning then welcome back and I hope you have a wonderful time listening to this episode. Now today's episode is about black British historical fiction We've taken a bit of a departure from our traditional episode of historical event, person, narrative or story. Um, And today I kind of wanted to talk to you about historical fiction, namely because non-fiction texts for a lot of people in understanding history are, I don't want to say the word boring, maybe inaccessible is better, lengthy, they're very academic and sometimes they aren't really written in a way for the general public to understand. But I feel like, and my way into black British history anyway, was through historical fiction. And I think that historical fiction, you know, as long as it's got some accuracy um, and like, you know, integrity to truth in it, then it can be a really good way to understand a specific historical time period. That's not to say you should go away from a historical fiction text taking everything as truth and you know the characters the storyline that might not have actually happened but the setting you know comments made fashions worn um speech even those are cues you can take to learn about that historical time period and i'll be focusing today on five texts in particular that are my favorite black british history texts and i am going to share them with you tell you a little bit about why i love them and hopefully this will inspire you to pick up at least one of them if you haven't read them already so the five texts i'm going to speak about today in this order are clr james's letters from london andrea levy's small island sam selvan's the lonely londoners buki emichetta's second class citizen and chinue achebe's things fall apart now you might be thinking things fall apart is that really black british fiction Yes and no, it's definitely African fiction um, and it's written obviously by an African author about Africa but it's a story of colonisation and that little time and transition of forced switching over of power, shall we say. So I'm going to include it because I think, and I read somewhere, I think it's a tweet going round, you've probably seen it, that says something along the lines of slavery isn't black history Um, But it's an interruption of black history. Um, And I think colonisation under the same vein is the colonisers' history. It's British history, it's Spanish history, it's French history, it's Dutch history. It's an interruption of those African countries, Caribbean countries, the indigenous people that lived on those lands. And so in that kind of vein... Um, I've included Things Fall Apart um, in my list. Also, I just wanted to talk about the book, so sorry. Sorry if it doesn't fit the categorisation, but it's just what I wanted to talk about today. (laughs) Okay, so starting with C.L.R. James's Letters from London. Now, this text is kind of, it's definitely fictitious in its majority, but it's based on C.L.R. James's actual experiences in London, so it's probably the closest thing to non-fiction or kind of autobiographical writing, but it isn't wholly accurate when why I've included it. Um, C.L.R. James is a writer from Trinidad. He was part of the Socialist League. He also wrote The Black Jacobins, which is about the Haitian Revolution, which is a sensational text, um, and I would have featured it today, but that would be, you know, French, Caribbean 
lines of history and I really want to do an episode on the Haitian Revolution one day but I feel like I to do it justice and the reverence it deserves I need to research it for about six months beforehand or have a amazing guest that's like an expert in it because it's one of them events that you just can't I don't think you can just say what it was there's so much more to it so if anybody's listening that would like to come on and do an episode about the Haitian Revolution or know someone who's an expert in that field then send me a message um tweet me dm me email me either way but clr james wrote the black jacobins um he was also the first west indian to have a novel published in britain which is also quite interesting um because it shows well it doesn't really show you know how early clr james was in britain because he wasn't really you know navigating britain that early it was like the 40s 50s pre-windrush generation um but yeah, it just shows, I think, the lack of opportunities for West Indian people to find themselves in positions to write and be published in Britain. Um, so Britain in the 1940s and 50s, um, it, it's kind of dealing with the independence of colonies. The empire is declining and there's a lot of anti-colonial activism around the globe. So the Caribbean, countries in Africa, countries in Asia, they're all kind of, you know, in this post-war Britain can't really keep up the colonies anymore. They've run out of money. The war was expensive, costly on lives and on economics. Um, And so, you know, countries are seizing independence and are successful because Britain can't afford to fight, essentially. Um, And also they can't afford to kind of run them anymore. So some of them are slipping away. Um, And it's 1947 where India and Pakistan have independence. um, And it's... You know, a bit later for some of the Caribbean countries, but some of the countries in Africa do also get their independence around this time. Um, But there is a push, and the push comes from those people living on those islands or in those nations that want to govern themselves. Unfortunately, and I've realised as I have started recording this podcast, that all the texts I deal with, or I'm going to talk about, deal with themes of racism because they're all about migrations to this country, this country being Britain. Um, And I didn't intentionally do that, but it seems the case that, you know, the experience of people migrating to Britain was really centred around racism, unfortunately, and racial discrimination. Now, CLR James is probably the odd one out in the way it deals with racism and represents it. It gives off a quite light-hearted tone. Um, It makes excuses for people downplaying racial incidents um that he encounters um as he navigates bloomsbury and the kind of literary circles of london he gets back at them in his writing um but not in the actual kind of quote-unquote real life and the flesh of the story um there's points where he comments on the gender difference of white people and how white men react to him in comparison to white women who he believes, well, he doesn't believe this, he doesn't mention it, but, you know, when reading, you have to think about the ideas of the fetishization of black men, um, and because of that, white women treating them better or, or being kinder, whereas it would be a different relationship with white men who saw black men often as stealing their jobs, stealing their women, stealing their country, as I say all the time. But as James, you know, talks about London and his experiences... And, you know, the title is obviously Letters from London. He is speaking about his experience of England. Um, He talks about the reality of it, which is, I'd say, 
common and true of all the texts I'll speak about. He counters the view that England is a great place, which is the believe, the belief of the time. Um, he references slavery and this idea that you know British people will never be slaves, um, and that's quite a poignant note for the for the novel to end on. I don't want to spoil it by giving away too much, but I'm kind of broadly speaking about the themes. Um, I wouldn't be good at book reviews, I don't think, because there's an art to telling people about a book without ruining it. And I'm so cautious of ruining the book that I'm going to probably say less than I probably could get away with. So bear with me if this feels like I haven't really told you anything about the book. I'm just going to give you themes, you know. But C.L.R. James's Letters from London, it's set in the perspective of a man who has wealth. You know, he's in the literary circles. He's navigating Bloomsbury, pre-Windrush generation. Um, so he is in most situations the token, quote unquote, token black man that comes with its privileges, um, you know, in kind of comparison to the Windrush generation who we'll look at in two texts later on. Um, and yeah, I think it's an important text because it really does um, give us some information pre-Windrush. And as much as I speak about the Windrush so much on here, I'm very much of the view that we need to, to broaden our historical knowledge in this country. It's all well and good, you know, revering and mem remembering the Windrush generation for all that they did for this wonderful country. But, you know, this history, this Black British history, it's broad. You know, black people in this country since the 3rd century AD with the Roman Empire. And we need to remember that. So this is, I think, probably the double tick that I get from C.L.R. James's Letters from London. The second text is Andrea Levy's Small Island, and it's a fantastic, sensational book. It's been made into a BBC uh, adaptation. I think there's a film as well that might be the same thing, and there's also a play by the National Theatre, and it's coming back. It's actually coming back. I think maybe really early on in this podcast, if you've been listening from the start, I mentioned the fact, or it might have been when I was a guest on someone else's podcast, I think it was... If you've ever want to know about the Windrush scandal, I did an episode on a really, really great podcast called Educate. Um, it's my friend's podcast. And on there, I spoke about the fact that this play by the National Theatre was going to be online uh, for like 48 hours because during lockdown, which is when I made the episode, the National Theatre were putting the shows on YouTube for like 48, I think it was a week, on a Thursday, they'd put it up for a week and you'd have a week to watch it and then it would come back down again and you could donate to keep, obviously, the theatres alive and keep them going during the pandemic. But they have decided to actually bring the show back to the National Theatre. So it's coming back in February, February the 24th. How do I know? Because I've bought my tickets and I'm very excited. Um, and so that will be running, I think, until, oh, I think April. I don't want to say, like, the summer and it's not. I think it's February to April. But even if not, then I would suggest you get your tickets. If the theatre is one of them things that's super expensive and you're like, mm, no, I'm not going to be able to do that, then there's a thing called Friday Rush. Um, and on a Friday, you can get £10 tickets, but you have to book them from like 1pm. You get in a queue and then you can book the £10 tickets for the week ahead. So if you know that you want to go to the theatre, like, I don't know, Saturday the 7th of March, like the Friday before, which would be like the... 30-something of February, um, you can book, um, and that's a really great way of doing that, um, just, you know, money-saving tips. Look at me out here educating and helping you save coins. Wow. Wow, a multifaceted girl. Um, anyway, back to the story. 
of um, Small Island. Now, Small Island is obviously referring to the small island that is Jamaica. But also, could it be referring to the small island that is Britain? Hmm. You will understand that kind of play on words, I think, when you read it. And I won't tell you why. But, um, yeah, what is the small island that's being referred to? And the story is really cool because it follows the lives of a few individuals and their lives all intertwine at different points but each chapter is from a different person's perspective and I love books like that they're my favorite type of fiction because you're not just reliant on the one narrator you've got several and when you kind of are able to understand the different perspectives without relying on the one kind of narrator or an omniscient like narrator a third first person third person third person um then I feel like you know, you get a kind of more rounded image of what's happening and it works so well for the play as well. But um, the characters are Hortense Roberts, who is a school teacher uh, from Jamaica, Gilbert Joseph, who is also from Jamaica, and I'm deliberately not saying too much, Queenie Buxton, um, who I'd say Hortense is the protagonist, like the main character, it's her life kind of, but Queenie is also one of the novels I'd say secondary protagonists if that's a thing um and she's a white British woman uh, who rents out her house I'm not going to tell you to who there's Bernard um Bernard Blythe who is another character and also um a serviceman who is in World War Two. this novel is set over World War Two, and then that kind of post-war Windrush era um which is probably why I love it so much because I really do like the stories of the Windrush era even though I've just said all that about how we need to broaden our horizons and look at the histories. But, you know, you like what you like. Um, And, yeah, the story is... It's very good at engrossing you because the plot isn't just reliant on the racism that these individuals are facing. It's actually about their lives, you know, their personal lives, their intimate lives. And I think you get a really good picture of the challenges faced by this generation in Britain. Um, and it's just so beautifully written. So, yeah, that's why that book made the list. My third text is The Lonely Londoners by Sam Selvon. And if you've been listening to episodes over the past few weeks, I think I've mentioned this text like twice, three times. I think it's going to become the new Staying Power by Peter Fryer. So, again, every time I mention this book, I think you should also take a shot of water maybe. But, um, yeah, it's just one of those texts that I reference all the time because I think it's fantastic. It is my top two favourite books of all time. Um, And why do I love it so much? Well, again, it's about the Windrush generation. It's from a very male perspective, which is not something I normally like. I think, you know, the place of women and the erasure of black women especially, um, historically, is very, very a very, very big problem, should I say. Um, But this text, dealing with issues of masculinity, being a man, not being able to provide struggling to find work, housing, a wife, is an important narrative to hear. And so I give Sam Selvan a blight. Um, Sam Selvan is a Trinidadian writer. Um, and I really like how language is used in this book. Um, you know, this text is not written in formal English. It uses speech um, and it speaks. they speak in Creole, in Patois. And you kind of have to keep up with it. And I think it's an element of having to keep up with these characters, with Moses, with Galahad. Um, as they try and keep up with London. The Lonely Londoners, the title is already quite provocative. I think London is a lonely place anyway. Um, 
and the fact that these people are lonely you kind of want to figure out why and that is explored in this text and not just lonely in the sense of they don't necessarily know anyone they recently migrated but lonely in their struggles and lonely in their strifes and the things that they have to try and achieve and, and the challenges that they're trying to overcome um there's also a lot of whilst there's not a lot of women there's quite a lot of comment on um the relationship between white women and black men and so this kind of fetishization that I spoke about from CLR James's text it plays into this novel as well quite a lot more um you know black men were seen as exotic desired by white women and they are also obviously getting something out of their sexual exchanges and so that is a theme in this text that comes up quite a lot um and you know the role of women in this text whilst the women are tend to be unnamed and if they are they are kind of the mammy figure in um one of the characters Tanti or they're kind of this you know highly sexualized there for the purpose of the men character um unfortunately kind of playing into those stereotypes um I still enjoyed the book still can critique it though um but yeah so a very very good text it looks a assimilation um and it's quite interesting because I feel like the use of language in terms of formal English as well is very strong. So there's kind of a clash of the two, of this Creole patois and then this formal Englishness. Um, and I think the landscape of London, if you know London and you read this text, it's really, really good because you can kind of see it and visualise it and understand the kind of stark contrast of these really colourful, quote-unquote, exotic characters from the Caribbean and the bleak, dullness of London and especially when you get the kind of market scenes and the bus scenes that come up um, I always kind of picture it being quite a contrast and a parallel um, when I think about this story um, I spoke about this a lot in the episode about you know the texts that have been added to the curriculum for GCSE OCR and A level um, I think this one's on the A level spec now for OCR so an interesting read um, I think to have on there there'll be some kind of big themes to be explored um on this kind of a-level syllabus so definitely a book that you know if you've got children that are going through the education system soon they might be reading this so maybe a good thing to read as well um but yeah a great text a really short text as well um sam salvons and clr james are quite quick reads Small Island is a little bit of a, a juicier book. It's quite meaty, and that's what we love. And the fourth book we have is Buccia Machita's Second Class Citizen. And this text is important because, first of all, this is by a Nigerian woman. And I very rarely speak about Africa on this podcast, African history, African writers, um, because it's just not where my knowledge lies. But today it does, so I can speak about this book second-class citizen, um, from the title already, you know, and the fact that it's written by a black woman, you can probably imagine, um, you know, some of the comments or points it's trying to raise or make. Um, this, again, I would definitely say it's in my top ten texts of all time. And before this podcast, and I was recording it, I listened to an interview she did in 1975 um, about her book. Uh, the protagonist that she writes about comes over in 1962 and she's a woman from Nigeria migrating to Britain um, and I would put it in here as clips but it specifically says on the video about copyright and I don't want my podcast to die or get fined or something um, by Spotify so I won't use it but I will explain some of the things she said and how that kind of relates to the text and 
why it's so brilliant at what it does. So the text is about a character called Ada, who's Ibo, um, and it starts with her in school in Nigeria being very fearless. Um, you know, she's moved to London to join her husband and is, like, really determined to succeed. This determination is just and resilience is a, just such a strong theme in the text and also is probably the reason why the text is often read as semi-autobiographical, kind of like C.L.R. James's um, Letters from London. Although this was not her story, um, you know, incomplete, the story of her as an Igbo woman migrating to Britain from Nigeria was true. Um, but the experiences obviously, um, you know, were not as close, which is obviously a good thing because the story is at times quite harrowing. Um, the welcome she receives from 1960s England, as well as the man she married, um, is horrendous. Um, and there are... And I will give a trigger warning now for abuse. If you needed a minute to end that or pause that um, or fast forward over a minute, um, I won't go into any of the kind of abuses that are mentioned, but it is quite harrowing at times. Um, yes, yeah, so, you know, her family is growing and she's struggling to survive, negotiating these injustices and kind of everyday life. But Ada's resolve is to be a writer, which obviously is why it's also seen as semi-autobiographical because that's obviously what Butchie does. Um, and, you know, the fact that she never gives up on her dreams, even through all the hardships. And this idea of being second-class citizen, she's saying not only is she a second-class citizen in Britain as a black person, she also feels like a second-class citizen in Nigeria as a woman due to things like marriage practices, um, the patriarchal society that exists and gender roles that are in place within society. Um, so it's kind of, again, similarly to Small Island, a like, play on words for the title in terms of her kind of experience as a quote-unquote second-class citizen. Um, the text is fantastic. It's great to read because I often find that people don't read texts written by black women very often. Um, and that sounds silly, but... When you think about it, maybe unless you are a black woman, how many texts can you say and fiction books at that have you read by black women? Um, and there's something unique about the experience of black women um, when it comes to migration or anything else. And so definitely a good perspective to understand and to read about. And yeah, it's a really good book. It is a sad one. It's probably the saddest one of all of the ones I've selected, but definitely worth it. Um, and again, it's quite a quick read um, if you wanted to give it a go. And the fifth and final book is Chinue Achebe's Things Fall Apart. Now, Achebe is often praised as the father of modern African literature. I think it might be the most famous text on the list. I think if most people have read any of them, it might be that one. Or Sam Selvan's Lonely Londoners, because I talk about it all the time. But the insight you get from the lives of people that their world is about to be turned upside down by colonisation... Um, but also into the lives of, I think, African people more widely, um, in some senses. Um, you take on the story of an Igbo wrestler called Onkongwo, and, you know, the text explores pre-colonial Nigeria um, and the kind of impact of, of British rule, the missionaries that are coming over at the time, and things of that nature. But also it kind of looks at the role of, of, ma of men uh, within the family structure, um, and kind of masculinity is explored, I would also say. Um, and it's just a great text in terms of 
for me anyway, reading something that was completely outside of anything I'd ever studied, because you don't ever study Africa before colonisation. You might study the Windrush at school, but you're definitely probably not going to study Africa, especially if you're my age. Maybe now um, curriculums are, are changing um, and teachers are adding things that are of interest to their pupils and themselves, but... I felt like when I read this, and I read it at university, it was in my first year, it was a compulsory read, and I'm so happy it was. Um, but when I read that, it felt like nothing I'd ever read before, except for maybe things, um, you know, towards like Chimamanda, um, Ngozi Adichie's books. But even then, she's talking about a more modern Nigeria, and this is talking about literally pre-colonial, very, like, slightly pre-colonial, um, but pre-colonial all the same, and... I think that's a very important perspective for us to understand and to read about. Um, Colonisation, to me, has always been seen as such a violent, brutal transition of power and just a disgusting act by European powers. And I just can't ever kind of celebrate that or think of that as a positive thing. Um, I don't care what it brought or didn't bring to these countries. It's just not something I will ever be chuffed about. Um, But... Yeah, it's it's a good perspective to have, I think, and, and to understand it from the perspective of those people that were being colonised, as opposed to, you know, hearing it from the coloniser. And that is the five books. They are the five books I've selected as my Black British historical fiction texts of 2021. Maybe next year I'll have read some more and I can share those um, at a similar point. I didn't want to give too much away about any of the texts, so I'm sorry if you felt like... Each one was brief, but I hate spoilers. Like, I honestly, if someone spoils something for me in any way, shape or form, I will never watch it, never read it. Already, I probably won't watch Squid Game because I've seen so much on Twitter and Instagram. That's been ruined. Um, If you don't know what that is, it's a Netflix show that I probably won't watch because I hate spoilers that much. And I already know, like, the tiniest bit about what happens in it. And it's already ruined it for me. So I've been super cautious to not ruin it and also keep this episode to a minimum because we're commuting now and we've not got as much time as we had before but I hope you enjoyed it anyway and please feel free to send me a message about any of these texts that you know if you want to read them or want some other recommendations a few of you have slid into the dms asking for more recommendations so feel free to do that as well um on my personal instagram I have a books highlight and all the books I've been reading over like the past however long highlights have been available or insta stories have been available because i always insta story the books that i'm reading um are on there so that might be a place to look if you would like at deanna lynn cook um so yeah books are great and it's not every day you want to read non-fiction even if you have a love for history so here are some fiction texts i hope you enjoy them have a wonderful week and thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.